Hello, welcome to a special episode of They Live By Film. It's Adam here, solo this time, bringing you a bit of a special episode, seeing as we don't have a interview this week or a, a normal discussion episode that will be coming to you guys uh, in the following week. So with it being October, with it being spooky season, I thought it's going to be maybe a really cool idea for me to bring you guys a list of recommendations for films you might want to put into your into your rota coming up to Halloween. Um, so I've essentially trawled through the last 100 years of horror filmmaking to put together a list of films that I think are great that I've personally watched and can personally recommend to you. How I'm going to divvy this up is I'm going to go through every decade from the 1920s all the way up to where we are now in 2022. And I'm going to recommend you three films from every decade. It's going to cover a whole range of horror subgenres. There's a couple of films in here that are maybe only horror adjacent, but I still feel qualified uh, you know, as a horror film because of the atmosphere or the, 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 the feel of the film. So we're going to kick off right now with the 1920s. So in 1920, first off the list, we are talking about The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, a German expressionist film from a director called Robert Wein, or Robert Wien. I'm not too, I'm not too sure on my, on my German pronunciation there. As you may know, you know, as film lovers, the German expressionist movement in the 1920s was incredibly influential, not just for horror, but just for, for film in general, in terms of how films were made, how sets were used, how makeup was used. Um, and, and Dr. Caligari, this film really sums up the, the best about the German expressionist uh, movement. It's set design, costume design, makeup is so incredibly inventive it's so dreamlike um it's it's one of those films where you watch it and you're and you're like yeah i I can understand why you know this was so influential uh the cabinet of dr caligari no it's with it being an older horror film from 1920s it's not going to have you know the scares and stuff that you get used to in later decades it is very much about the atmosphere uh about the sense of maybe dread um, that, that that goes throughout the film it has a very dreamlike quality as well which i think really lends to this horror film and, and horror in general i think when it has a dreamy atmosphere uh, or a nightmarish atmosphere even um can really sort of add to that sense of dread uh, so the, the cabinet of dr caligari certainly a film uh that i recommend you know not just coming up to spooky season but just generally speaking because of how important of a milestone it is in, in, in film and like that, this next film that I'm going to bring up, uh, just as if perhaps even more influential, uh, we have the F.W. Murnau film uh, Nosferatu, uh, which obviously I think everybody knows, you know, the image of, of Max Schreck, even if you've never seen Nosferatu, even if you're not even too sure 100% what Nosferatu even is, that, you know, Max Schreck as Count Orlok, because if you don't know the backstory behind Nosferatu, it was a, a an unofficial uh, adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, they stole the whole plot, but they at least had the the heart to change uh, some of the character names. Um, but Nosferatu, obviously, it's pretty sure it's the first vampire film. It's absolutely the most influential vampire film until 
the sort of later ones came in that, that kind of really expanded upon the mythology uh you know like the the universal dracula or even bram stoker's dracula uh from from coppola in the 90s um again like dr caligari it's not going to have much of a, a scare factor i think it's it's extraordinarily creepy i think it's a very creepy film even now you know exactly 100 years later uh it's i find it still an incredibly creepy film it's so well made and well put together by burn by Murnau, who's probably uh one of if not the sort of most dynamic filmmakers of the silent era um so for again if you're a horror fan if you and you haven't seen nosferatu maybe if you're put off by the fact that it's a silent film don't don't let that put you off it's an incredibly atmospheric film it's really engrossing um it's very creepy it's very well made and you know max shrek as count as count orlock is 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 iconic he's a horror icon and do, he deserves you to to look at uh this film and uh, closing out the 1920s is a film that came out in 1928 uh, by a german director working in hollywood called paul lenny uh, this film is probably the most obscure one and I'm going to talk about maybe for a while. Um, I have a copy of it that was released by Eureka uh, as part of their Masters of Cinema range and I watched it and I thought it was fantastic. Uh, again, it's a silent film. There was a sound version. This is kind of, this was made in the, when people were testing out sound film as a possibility. Um, but I believe the sound version is completely lost. So I have watched a silent version, which I think, Again, without seeing the sound version, I can't say for sure. But the way they do the silent aspect of this film is fantastic because the title cards are incredibly creative. I've just realized I never told you the name of the film. It's called The Last Warning. Um, just to give you a very breakdown, it's very much a story that you've seen a lot in a lot of different pictures. Um, it basically, it's about reopening a theater after uh, you know a horrible tragedy happened previously with an old production. I think that's a story that we've seen a lot and it's you know, because of films like The Last Warning, which may not have the long-reaching appeal as something like Nosferatu, but for what it did for horror at that time, you know, we can't really undersell how important it is. And again, it's a very creepy film. It's very atmospheric. It does, like a lot of, you know, horror kind of later down the line, it does actually have funny moments. I think there's a very thin line between comedy and horror. They're both about, you know, setups and payoffs. Um, there's a very thin line there's a reason why so many comedy directors have gone into horror you know like jordan peele um or uh, the guy who did the new halloween movies whose name has escaped me at the moment um and i think the last warning plays off that very very well there is moments of uh of of creaky funniness um but also a lot of creepiness as well and a lot of atmosphere um so the last warning uh, is the last film i'm going to recommend from the 1920s and now let's look at the 1930s. So the first film we're going to look at in the 1930s is another incredibly influential film, an incredibly famous film, an incredibly important film. Uh, it's from 1931 uh, by Universal, by an amazing director uh, called James Whale. We have Frankenstein, the original sort of Frankenstein, Boris Karloff. In fact, all three films from this decade that I'm going to recommend to you all feature uh, Karloff himself. Um, but Frankenstein and, and James Whale movies in general, and I'm going to talk about another James Whale film in a, in a few moments. Um, he's, he's such a, an artistic, uh, creative director. He really gets gothicism and he gets horror, but he gets humor as well. 
Um, he's yeah, there there's just no other voice like him in this era. Um, he was he's an auteur before auteurism was a thing. Uh, Frankenstein, again, it's it's a film that just has it's just caked in atmosphere. Um, everyone kind of knows the iconic moments from it, but I think you need to watch the whole film in order to to really do the story and the 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 film and the direction justice. Um, it's it's a fantastic film and it's a film that you know, only James Whale himself could have beaten because he did that. And this is the second film I'm going to talk about from this decade, which came out in 1935, which is The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, which is an incredibly interesting film because The Bride of Frankenstein doesn't even show up, uh, even though she's probably one of the most iconic horror characters ever. She doesn't show up till the very end of the film, the last couple of minutes. Um, This does play a little bit more on the sort of comedic side. Um, it, It does lean into the dark comedy um, but it's still just as well made. The set design is incredible. Karloff again is amazing as as, as you know Frankenstein's monster, this misunderstood sort of creature that has been forced into life. Um, and I think this film really helps to to make him more sympathetic. I think he already was sympathetic in the first Frankenstein film. A lot of people who have never seen or read Frankenstein just assume that Frankenstein, you know, his or Frankenstein's monster, I should say is a monster you know is this evil creature but um when you watch these films or if you've read the book you 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 can see that you know he's he's really not the villain of these films um and karloff does a fantastic job of of conveying that Uh, the other film that i'm going to talk about then for the 1930s is a film from 1934 um by a really interesting filmmaker called edgar g ulmer who very much is a a B-picture filmmaker that didn't get a lot of, you know, love when he was around, when he was alive. He just kind of, you know, just worked his jobs. But um, he's become really sort of influential, you know, further on after he had passed away and after his films had gotten reevaluated, And he's considered now one of, like, the top filmmakers that were, that was consistently working in, in B-pictures, um, away from horror his most famous film is probably uh, Detour uh, a film noir which is so incredibly gritty very B-movie but it's, it's, it's a great little film uh, but the film I'm going to talk about which he made in 1934 is called The Black Cat um, it does again as I mentioned before star Boris Karloff uh, it also stars Bela Lugosi uh, so we have the two icons of universal horror facing off, not for the first or the last time, I should say. They they featured together in a lot of different movies, um, both playing their most iconic roles and also playing one-off parts. Um, but this this film is a is a masterpiece of atmosphere. It's two behemoths of horror essentially playing a chess game with two innocent lives at stake. Um, it's very gritty. Um, it is a, a what they call a pre-code film so it's before the haze code came into effect so like there is some stuff in this film that you wouldn't you know normally um sort of connect with old horror films in terms of like not not straight out gore there's not buckets of blood or anything like that but there's a lot of times in this film where you're thinking jeez 
how did they get away with that? Uh, I don't think that would fly, uh, you know, in, in the 30s and 40s. And it didn't really after the Hays Code came in. This this was one of the kind of films that wouldn't have been made or would have been heavily edited in, in the Hays Code. Um, so I, I definitely recommend The Black Cat. Um, fantastic film. It's one of the one of the films that's coming to the Criterion channel. If you are a subscriber to the Criterion channel, I know obviously a lot of you would be. That's how our podcast got started was was true Criterion Channel picks. The Black Cat is coming to the Criterion Channel in August, in, in October, I should say. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking it out if you haven't, if it's something that maybe you thought, ah, it's just a, you know, a universal horror, Sherlocky fest film. It's not. It's, it's a fantastic film. and recommend that to close out the 1930s. And with that, we're going to move into the 1940s. So into the 1940s, and, and this is going to be quite of an interesting one because the three films I've chosen uh, for the 1940s all happen to be by the same director working for the same producer. It's kind of one of the iconic uh, director-producer duos in, in horror history, and that is the partnership between Jacques Tournier and Val Luton. Uh, so the first film I'm going to talk about is from 1942, and it is the iconic Cat People. Um, for those who haven't seen Cat People, it's a really interesting film. It's about a, a woman who comes from Europe. Uh, she's living in America and she has this deep fear that she's been cursed uh, by this sort of curse of her European village where she's going to turn into, you know, this panther compelled to kill whoever she sort of mates with. So she, she meets this American, but she's too afraid to sort of move, you know, into like a love affair with him because of this fear that she's going to turn into this killer panther uh sounds absolutely batshit insane and it kind of is but it, it works so well because of how much of a talent tournier was and how great val luton was at sort of you know setting up uh you know these films uh cat people is probably most well known for having what is perhaps the first jump scare so we all know now that modern horror films are kind of littered with jump scares to the point where you, you can kind of tell when one is when one is coming but back in the 40s that was a completely different thing nobody expected something like this in a film um the jump scare for for many decades was was known as a bus and probably still is in in actual in hollywood in filmmaking terms it's probably still known as a bus it's only really the modern audiences call it jump scares um but essentially it's a, a character walking through central park she kind of hears something might be following her and suddenly a bus just comes and sort of stops at a bus stop right in front of her. And it's that what we know now as a modern jump scare, that silent, slow tension building and then a loud sound happens. But, you know, it's not actually something very scary, it's something quite normal, just a bus pulling onto a bus stop. Fabulous film, incredibly well made. Um, Jacques Tournier, is, as we're going to talk about, just had such an amazing eye for atmosphere and for storytelling i think that's a really key thing that really makes his films stand out is he just he was able to tell a good story uh and usually quite economically uh, a lot of his films are, are on the shorter side this one is 73 minutes i'll give you the times for the other two i'm going to talk about as well that's another reason why i do like him quite a lot uh, as you guys listeners might know it's not that i'm not a big fan of long films i just I always just like when a storyteller can tell a story, a cohesive story, you know, in a, in a shorter time, sort of below 90 to 100 minutes. I think that's always really interesting. So uh, Cat People is the first one. 
from there, he made two films in 1943. So, you think Captain People's 1942. The next two films were made in 1943. So, again, it's going to tie into the economic factor of this film of this kind of filmmaking but also how amazing it is and how great these films are really attests to his talent and um, the first one that i'm going to talk about from 1943 is a film called i walked with a zombie um again maybe an iconic title but a film that a lot of people might not have actually seen uh, basically it's about a nurse who goes to the Car- to caribbean to care for this sort of uh, you know rich older patient and she becomes kind of surrounded by voodooism um i believe the film takes place in in haiti if i remember correctly uh but it is somewhere in the caribbean um what was a re- immediately really cool to see is that and this is something that you kind of get worried about when when films start bringing in things like voodoo and, and stuff from other cultures is that it's going to be insensitive this is actually very very tasteful it's an incredibly tasteful film there's no yeah there's there's no sort of messing around or belittling the voodooism it's i would like i wouldn't be surprised if if tournier and the writers went into you know when they met these people and you know got a, a proper sort of rundown on what their rituals are about and how they're done because again i i can't really say for sure because i'm not i haven't been involved in a voodoo ritual but it feels as an outsider it feels very very tasteful uh, it's very frank, very dignified, um, but again, it's it's caked in atmosphere. It's it's another fantastic film, um, and again, like the like I said with Cat People, it's a very cohesive story. Um, it's very well made. The characters are well fleshed out. It's it's just a well written, well made film. Uh, this one clocks in at sixty nine minutes, so even even shorter than than Cat People. Uh, the final film then from the 1940s again this one was made in 1943 again by Jacques Tournier and, and Val Luton and this is probably one of the more well-known ones because it's considered possibly the first slasher movie or it's certainly very uh, very influential in, in the genre and that's the leopard man uh, which again is even shorter 66 minutes so I, I, I inadvertently went down in chrono in uh, in sort of time order for how short and long these films are so this is the leopard man a leopard escapes this publicity stunt thing this sort of circusy thing a leopard escapes and people start getting murdered all around town is it the leopard is it a serial killer that's kind of up to the audience to figure out as this film goes on again very well made film the sets the characters the storytelling it's all it's all very very high class it's very classy uh very well done um, so if you're looking for three maybe shorter films that are still extremely high quality then the last three i've just talked about there from the 1940s should be very very high up on your watch list and now let's take a look at the 1950s So as we move into the 1950s, this is where I think the list is going to evolve a little bit. It's going to be less centric on Hollywood films. It's going to look perhaps at a wider spectrum of horror. This is the part where I kind of struggled to choose only three. There was a lot of standout films in each of these decades. And I tried to be as as wide with my scope as I possibly could to try and encompass a little bit of everything. I didn't just want to go, you know, the same kind of horror film over and over again. 
So we're going to start off with our friend Edgar G. Ulmer uh, back again. Uh, this time is a film he made, another B picture uh, that he made in 1951 called The Man from Planet X. Like, what a title. That's, that's, that, that is a pure B movie title. And it is a pure B movie. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it's only 70 minutes long. It was very cheaply made, but again, because Ulmer, he just has that great vision. He's another sort of auteur before auteurism began. He is able to, to out of pretty much nothing, create something that's quite entertaining and quite uh, quite fun, uh, frankly. Um, the film is basically about these group of scientists who are looking out for some, for some planet that might collide with the Earth, and an alien sort of from this planet comes to earth and tries to communicate with them um but it's perhaps he's trying to t- also sort of try and minimize the threat the planet's going to have before they come and all take over um i'm not going to lie to you the alien looks awful um it's really cheesy uh the suit that he's wearing and the sort of fake alien head looks like you know one of the stone heads from from easter island uh, it's really really cheap um but i don't know it just there's something in this film that just really works really well. There's something in the corniness and in the cheapness that just really sort of, it just really works. Um, you know, I can't really put exactly my finger on it as to why it works so well, but it just does. I think it's just, you know, one of those films where I'm not going to say it's so bad. It's good because it's not bad in any way, but it just has this freshness and this heart and this, this, sort of good cheesiness kind of like the house on haunted hill or a lot of william castle movies it has that sort of maybe cheapness or cheesiness that kind of elevates the film you know rather than sort of makes it bad if that makes sense mm-hmm. um now to be fair there is a lot of nice visuals the sets for the scottish moors very 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 nice looking um mm-hmm. i'm a big fan and i know a lot of people aren't but i'm a big fan of, of fake outdoor sets uh, hitchcock you see a lot of them in his early films as well and, and the kind of outdoor set here is not terribly unlike the one used in the 39 steps um but yeah uh the, the man from planet x if you're looking for some cheap and easy fun and you're into like your sci-fi stuff then i would certainly recommend that uh now the next film this is where things get a little bit different uh, for the rest of the list so we're gonna move away from from hollywood away from english you know language filmmaking for the next two picks uh, the first one, or the next one I'm going to talk about, I should say, uh, came out in 1952, and it's from a, a film sort of country that you, you don't normally, it's from a country, I should say, that you don't normally see a lot of films or a lot of sort of big, famous, influential films come out of, because uh, it's from Finland, um, and it's called The White Reindeer. Uh, it was made by a guy called Eric Blomberg, and uh, I got a copy of this from Eureka. Again, they have a, a Blu-ray for this Um which is really, really, really beautiful Blu-ray. Um, but the restoration and the film is fantastic. It's set in Lapland, which again is a cinematic landscape that you just don't see very often. You know, I'm sure there's probably, probably plenty of films that are set in Lapland, but they're not obviously really filmed there, which this one is. It's set in this sort of very desolate, snowy landscape. And it what takes place is pretty much kind of like a folk horror. Uh, it's probably the best way to put it. Um, it's about this this woman who um she marries this sort of guy in in her village but he's very obsessed with hunting and things like that so she goes to the shaman um who basically tells her how to perform a ritual 
to make her kind of irresistible to all men um but obviously like all these kind of films there are dark repercussions that uh, don't get mentioned initially and it basically turns her into this kind of vampire creature um it's such a classy film uh again there's nothing sort of cheap about it um in terms of how just you know the story is made it's a very authentic film you can tell this is probably a folk tale you know from you know this country or this region uh, that they've made they're not trying to make something that's hokey or or fake or anything like that um this one would be very much for fans of like robert eggers movies like the witch and the lighthouse um they will they will like this kind of film um i know zach who obviously co-hosts the podcast with us i recommended this film to him a year or two ago and he really enjoyed it as well so you know you don't just have to take my word for it you can take zach's as well uh, so the, the white reindeer i'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere if you did want to pick up the, the the eureka copy you can normally get it pretty cheap from eureka themselves um would really really recommend the film if you want to see something that's just completely different to anything you would have seen before uh you, you can't go wrong there and then the last one from the 1950s this is where we get into territory where we're talking horror adjacent because we're going to talk about a film that is probably the most hitchcockian film that hitchcock never made uh, it's from a French filmmaker called Henri, uh, Henri Georges Clouseau. Um, from 1955, we have Les Diaboliques. Um, very iconic film. It's very much known for its, its twist ending, which I'm not going to spoil here if it hasn't already been spoiled for you. But what the film is basically about, it's one of these sort of tales where um, a wife who's unhappy with her domineering, abusive husband, you know, kills him off. But then there's hints that he might not actually be dead. People talking about them seeing him, you know, things like that. I, again, I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to get into spoiler territory. But um, incredibly well-made film. So much atmosphere, so much um, suspense. Again, like I said, it's like, this is the kind of film where Hitchcock probably looked at this and said, oh, I wish I could have made this film. Because uh, it is very Hitchcockian, but just, there is a lot of horror elements to it as well, which is why I, I would call it a horror-adjacent film. It has that element of, of suspense and, and thrill um, that, that you would hope to get from, from this kind of film. So that's going to wrap up the 1950s. Uh, so let's take a dive into the 1960s. So kicking off the 1960s, it would be remiss for me to talk about what I consider to be a miracle of, of horror and of filmmaking in general, uh, which is a film from 1962 called Carnival of Souls. Uh, it's, it's a soul film, a soul narrative film, I should say, of a guy called Herc Harvey, who made a lot of industrial educational movies and he had this idea and he got this funding to make a, this sort of cheap horror film in, in Salt Lake City in Utah in the US. And it's a film where it shouldn't work. Nothing about this film should work. It's cheaply, shoddily made. It doesn't have much of a story to it. It has a lot of sort of issues with like sound production, things like that. And you're... The first time you watch this movie, you're probably thinking, this is a bit shoddy. Um, this, some of this stuff is a bit odd, how you know bad some of the sound is, or how hammy some of the acting is. But then the film ends, and it has a twist ending, which I won't go into. 
but it lets you completely reevaluate the film and instead of those what you know what would be normally seen as issues or, or things to sort of mark down a film on actually end up making the film better because of you know the twist and it's a film where when you watch it more and more when you watch it the second or third or fourth or whatever time you're sitting there going her carby is probably the luckiest man on earth that what would normally be mistakes or would normally be poor filmmaking has ended up elevating a film and this I mentioned earlier uh, the Ulmer film Detour, uh, the film noir, and that very much is the same. There's a lot of bad filmmaking in that film that actually makes it better. Um, and Carnival of Souls is one of those movies. So if you've never seen Carnival of Souls or you've only seen it once and you thought, this movie isn't isn't great, why am I, why am I watching this movie? I would implore you to watch it and reevaluate it after finishing it um, because I think that everything... Like again, maybe I'm being too harsh on the whole movie. There is actually quite a lot of really cool stuff in this film, um, apart from the the mistakes. But I love this film for its mistakes, because the mistakes actually make it a better film when you take the entire narrative into consideration. Now, sort of like with the 1950s, I'm going to try and make things as as wide as possible. So I'm going to talk about now uh, that that was a black and white film, Carnival of Souls. I'm going to talk about a film that very much relies on its color uh, for you know cinematography and it's filmed by roger corman um i could have talked about a lot of roger corman films in the 1960s um this is just one i just decided to choose uh, it's one of the many films he made with vincent price who i absolutely adore he's one of my favorite actors of all time um and it's one of the many edgar Allan poe adaptations that they did together um i'm going to mention the mask of the red death i think this was the easiest one to talk about um, purely because of just how amazing the the cinematography is in this in this film, Roger Corman is obviously an iconic, uh, you know, figure as a director, as a producer, as someone who helped a lot of filmmakers get their start, you know, through him, uh, through his production company. But I, I he gets obviously a lot of praise for that, um, rightly so. But I don't think he gets a lot of praise for his, the films he actually directed. Uh, which is a bit sad because The Mask of the Red Death is as good a horror film as any fi- horror film ever made. It's as good looking as any film that's ever been made or, or you know, shot in colour at least. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the plot. A lot of people know the plot already. You know, Poe's work is iconic in its own right. Um, just to say that I love Vincent Price. I'll watch anything that Vincent Price happens to show up in. He's just the perfect scenery chewer. Uh, He's just a perfect mix of classy and corny, and I wouldn't trade him for anything in the world. Uh, but this film also looks amazing. So if you're looking for a horror film that is both horrifying, while also like really beautifully well made, um, The Mask of the Red Death is is definitely the best way to go. And the last movie I'm going to talk about in the 1960s is another film that's kind of horror adjacent. Uh, again, actually, oddly enough, like what I talked about in the 1950s, probably another one for the fans of, of David Eggers. And we're going to talk about a filmmaker that has very esteemed, very altruistic, um, probably one of the most influential filmmakers ever made. He's my favorite filmmaker, uh, Mr. Ingmar Bergman. And it's a film he made in 1968 called Hour of the Wolf. Uh, with Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman. Uh, Liv Ullman's my favourite actress of all time. I think she is the goat. Um, but Hour of the Wolf is a very interesting film. It's pretty much Bergman's only kind of attempt at kind of pure horror. There is other films he made that kind of touches on horror elements like 
persona and the virgin spring but um we can we can really call this like a, a pure kind of psychological horror if you like your horror films to be rooted in psychology uh while also having sort of ambiguous elements um kind of like you know like i mentioned uh, robert eggers films but a lot of the ele- you know what, what they call the elevated horror that's come out the last kind of 10 years a kind of introspective horror films a, a lot of those would, would take from hour of the wolf and if you're a fan of that kind of modern trend of horror films um i certainly recommend hour of the wolf it's a it's a quite disturbing film not from like a gory perspective or you know it's just like in terms of the atmosphere the, the sort of psychological aspect of it and some of the things that happen in the film are, are quite deeply disturbing um but you know bergman's a master filmmaker he's like i said he's just objectively speaking he's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time in my personal opinion i think he's the greatest filmmaker of all time and the hour of the wolf is if you're looking for something a little bit different to his chamber pieces if you've seen like a lot of his more famous films you know like through a glass darkly or autumn sonata or cries and whispers you know does more sort of straight drama films um hour of the wolf if you're looking for something a little bit different uh, certainly certainly a way to go if you're more of an art film kind of kind of person now let's dive into the 1970s. So I'm going to kick off my, my 1970s with a Giallo film, uh, but not the Giallo film you probably anticipate me talking about. So for those unfamiliar, Giallo film is kind of like a subgenre of kind of horror, thriller films. Uh, that came to prominence in the 1970s um, through primarily through Dario Argento and, and Mario Bava, who was a little bit before in the 1960s, but um, well, 1970s kind of really kicked into gear. There was a lot of these films made. Um, the one I'm going to talk about uh, came out in 1972 and it's by a filmmaker called Emilio Miraglia. And it's called The Red Queen Kills Seven Times fantastic giallo title all giallo films usually have these crazy crazy titles um this one stars barbara boucher who's amazing uh she's a really great actress um basically it's a it's it's a really good sort of mix of of classical and modern so um barbara boucher's character um she grows up kind of in this aristocratic family her and her sister um as they were kids kind of heard about this legend of this uh where basically one sister will kill seven people the seventh being the sister um now most of it takes place in modern times but there's a nice mix between when she goes back to the old family castle to kind of investigate this mystery because suddenly this red cloaked killer starts killing people off and she starts getting afraid that maybe it's her sister uh who's gone missing and potentially is now going to be hunting to kill her down as part of this family curse um, I won't go too much into it because, again, I don't want to get into spoiler territory if you've never seen it. Um, this one should be available on the Arrow Player. That's certainly where I watched it. So if you are subscribed to the Arrow Player, uh, take a look out for it there. Um, they definitely did a Blu-ray release of it. So if you're more of a physical media person, I would certainly recommend that. Uh, the Red Queen Kills Seven Times is probably my favorite shallow. Um, I know a lot of people like, you know, Deep Red or, you know, The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, you know, those Argento films. Uh, or even, um, you know, the Mario Bava ones like Black Sunday. Uh, but yeah, the Red Queen Kills Seven Times. Just something I love about this movie. I think it's a really good balance between uh, sort of classic sort of gothic horror 
and also that sort of modern proto-slasher. And kind of staying in Italy then for the next film, it takes place mainly in Venice, but um, it was made by an Australian with a sort of largely sort of, you know, um, multinational cast. Uh, it's called uh, Don't Look Now from 1973 uh, by Nick Rogue, who's obviously a very acclaimed, uh, you know, filmmaker. Uh, definitely, you know, one of these sort of auteur guys. Um, for those who've never seen Don't Look Now, it's a really sort of sad film, really. It's about Donald Sutherland and Judy Christie, who their daughter dies in their family home. So they go on a trip to Venice just to try and, you know, just try and escape the misery, just to try and reclaim their lives a little bit. Um, but at the same time, there's these slew of uh, murders that are happening that, and both stories begin to kind of intertwine, especially when Donald Sutherland's character starts seeing visions of what might be the ghost of his daughter um, wearing this red coat that she was wearing when she died. Um, it, it's one of those films where it has the most batshit insane ending. Just one of the most craziest endings in a film I've ever seen. Uh, for those who've seen it and are listening to this are probably nodding in agreement right now. It's just absolutely crazy. If you've never seen it, um, don't read into it too much. You're definitely better off going into this film blind. I unfortunately was not going into this film blind because I had this spoil. I had this film spoiled for me many years ago, um, when Channel Four uh, did a series of like one hundred scariest movie moments, something like that. I think it was called. Uh, for those who sort of grew up in Ireland and the UK, you might be familiar with the special. They usually put it on around hard uh, around Halloween time, um, and unfortunately the ending was spoiled on me as a as a young kid. And when I went to visit this film, I knew exactly what was going to happen. But even then, knowing exactly what's going to happen, it's still just crazy uh how how mind-boggling it is so uh don't look now um certainly recommended i know the criterion copy is out of print um if you are multi-regional or if you're like me in region b studio canal did a very nice 4k um release of this with blu-ray as well of course so uh certainly recommend picking it up because it's a fantastically well made very artful film apart from you know being a straight horror and finally, if we were going to talk about 1970s horror films, I think Zach would kill me if I didn't mention the classic John Carpenter 1978 slasher film, Halloween. Uh, it's one of my favorite films of all time. It's like a top five all-time film for me. I've seen it, I don't even know, well over uh, 20 times maybe. I watch it every year on Halloween, uh, much to my uh, partner's chagrin of her having to watch it every Halloween with me. Um, but I, there's probably not a soul or very few souls who've never seen the original Halloween. It's it's the perfect horror film. Everything about it is, is just perfection. The atmosphere, that sort of ambiguity that Carpenter creates surrounding, you know, the shape, Michael Myers. You know, the sequels are very, very hit and miss. Like most slasher franchises, the sequels are very, very hit and miss because they often try and demystify, um, well, in Halloween's case anyway, it, it tries to demystify and give Michael Myers a motive when I think he is so much scarier when he has no motive. And that's what's so perfect about Halloween because it, it this could be anyone. This could be happening to anyone. And the sequels demystify that a little bit. Um, But the first film, you know, the original Halloween is... 
the best horror film ever made and in my opinion is one of the best films ever made it's obviously incredibly influential it basically even though it wasn't the first slasher film it, it really kicked off you know what would be the slasher film sort of craze in the 80s uh with you know a lot of copycat films like um you know friday the 13th and the burning and you know films like that uh, but if you've never if you've somehow never seen the dog if you've never seen halloween make that your must watch viewing on halloween because it's just head and shoulders above any other kind of film in that in that subgenre and in my opinion it's the best horror film ever made and now let's move into the 1980s so speaking of iconic pinnacles of horror filmmaking let's just get this one out of the way uh, 1980 the legendary stanley kubrick released uh, the shining an adaptation of a book by stephen king uh, which stephen king didn't like very much because it doesn't really stick to his book a whole ton um but yeah the, the shining it's again like halloween it's one of those films where if you've somehow never seen it make sure you change that um it's a film again that i've seen a lot of times I think I might have lo- I think I love it a little bit less now than I did when maybe I first watched it. Um, but one thing you know that we can say for sure is when it comes to a film portraying cold dread, The Shining does it better than pretty much any other film. There's not a lot of jump scares. There's not a lot of scares in general, but there is just this creeping dread and fear that just permeates through every single scene it's like it's it's so thick this sort of atmosphere i don't again i don't know why i'm going to be questioning how kubrick did it because obviously he did it because he was a genius um but you know everything how this film makes you feel it makes you sit there and squirm for two hours or so without actually really doing a whole lot until the last 20 minutes and that i can really attest to kubrick's you know ability as a filmmaker it, it might not be for everybody some people might think it's a bit too slow um but for someone who likes atmospheric horror uh for someone who is not i don't really care about jump scares i actually prefer my horror without jump scares i think they're very cheap uh, a lot of the time um then the, the shining is a is a fantastic horror film there's a reason why it's so iconic if you've somehow never seen it again see it one thing i recommend you do not do is go down the rabbit hole of all the crazy fan theories there's a documentary uh, called room 237 um where a bunch of crackpots give all their theories about what the shining is really about um i'm sorry if you are a listener and you are one of those crackpots but you need to go outside <laughs> and breathe some air uh some crazy stuff happens in that documentary um if you wanted to watch it i would recommend doing it for comedic value as opposed to actually taking into you know taking a grain uh, of, of anything that, that that those people say um moving into more horror adjacent ground we're going to be talking this is a bit, bit more sort of sci-fi horror um and that is the 1983 film from david cronenberg uh, called video drone stars james woods and debbie harry from blondie um basically about this uh this this sort of really trashy tv channel station that um 
that uh, James Woods' character happens upon and becomes obsessed with because it's all just about torture and death and punishment and all these sort of crazy sadistic things. And he becomes very obsessed with, you know, what the source is and, you know, where is this station coming from, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's a... It's a violent film. It's a sexually aggressive film. You know, it's it's very much sums up Cronenberg's you know overall of his work. It's it's a you know it really has a lot of his sort of themes that follow him throughout his whole career, are shown here in Videodrome. Uh, very interesting film. Even you know for something that might sound very sort of dark, it's very entertaining. That's that's one thing I I have to say about this film. I thought it was awesome. I didn't expect to like it at all. And um, from reading about it, I thought I'm. This is just not going to be my cup of tea. And I came out of it loving it. I thought it was a, a, such a really entertaining film. It's very nineteen eighties. Um, so if you've never seen Videodrome, definitely put that on your list uh, for something to to watch this Halloween as well. And the last film I'm going to talk about in the nineteen eighties is yet another sort of franchise starter. Um, along with Halloween and another one I'm going to talk about a little bit later this will be uh, sort of one of my favourite sort of franchises and it's the 1984 uh, film from Wes Craven uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street um, I don't actually funnily I'm recommending Nightmare on Elm Street here but it's not actually my favourite one of the series I'll be talking about my favourite one uh, shortly um, but I kind of have to recommend this one because if you've never seen the series in general, you kind of have to start, you know, with the first one. It is a very, very solid film. It's a, it's a good sort of entry point into the franchise. Uh, and it is a franchise that actually has quite a lot of good films, which is strange for slasher sort of horror franchises. A lot of the time there's like one or two good ones and then they kind of dip pretty dramatically from there. Uh, I, pretty, I think Nightmare on Elm Street is pretty consistent across the board. The first one, as I mentioned, is good. Um, the second one wasn't very liked when it came out, but it's actually a really interesting film to watch now because it has a lot of uh, gay subtext. Um, so if you're interested in, in that kind of aspect, uh, the second Nightmare on Elm Street film has that. Uh, the third one is often called, by fans anyway, the kind of best one. From there, it does dip a little bit until another film, which I'll talk about a little bit later. But if you're interested in the franchise, uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, by Wes Craven, obviously Freddy Krueger is, is one of the most iconic sort of characters in, in film, not not just horror. Uh, every every little kid knows and is terrified of Freddy Krueger. So uh, if, you're, if you're one of those people who, like me, was terrified of Freddy Krueger as a child, but hadn't actually seen A Nightmare on Elm Street film, um, you know, and up until like your sort of late teens, uh, like me, uh, definitely recommend making that one of your films uh, to watch. Uh, so that's closing out the 1980s. Uh, we're going to start now with the 1990s and it's going to be familiar. So speaking of uh, Wes Craven, speaking of Freddy Krueger, uh, the first one I'm going to talk about uh, in the 1990s uh, came out in 1994 and it was one of the, the many sort of sequels um, for the Nightmare on Elm Street series. This is Wes Craven's new nightmare. I love this film so much. It's so creative. Um, it's the, you know, one of the many evolutions of the meta horror filmmaking i can't sit here and say it's the first meta horror film jason lives probably beats it um but 
Wes Craven's New Nightmare, there's just something amazing about this film. It's kind of a prototype for another film, which I will talk about in a couple of moments, um, for this kind of meta horror. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's my favourite of, the, of the, the sort of Nightmare on Elm Street series. It's my personal favourite. Uh, I think it's an incredibly well-made film. It's so well-written. I love the meta aspect. Um, for those who might not be familiar about it, maybe just kind of heard about it in passing but don't actually know what it's about, um, this film takes place during the making of a Nightmare on Elm Street film. Heather Langenkamp, who is in the original, is playing herself, who's coming back to you know play in a new Nightmare on Elm Street film. Robert England again is playing himself. Wes Craven is in the film playing himself. Um, very meta. If you're into that kind of thing, then New Nightmare is really, really going to be up, up your alley. It's uh, very much ahead of its time in terms of how sort of meta filmmaking would, would become a, a lot more popular a little bit down the line. Um, speaking of meta horror and speaking of Wes Craven, um, we're going to talk about what is probably my second favourite horror film ever. And that came out in 1996, and it's Scream. Um, Scream, out of all the horror franchises, in my opinion, Scream is the most consistent. Uh, there's five Scream films out. Four of them are great. Uh, the third one gets dumped on a lot. I don't think it's terrible. Um, it's certainly, um, you know, it's, it's certainly a lot worse than than all the others. But uh, it's not often you have you know five horror films in a series, and and four out of five are what I would consider, you know, at least eight out of ten films. Uh, but Scream for me is one of the most perfect films ever made. It's so it's everything tonally about it is what's perfect. It really balances the horror with the meta sort of commentary with the bits with a little bit of humor as well Sydney Prescott is awesome uh, is just it's just a fantastic character in general um played by Nev Campbell uh you have Courtney Cox who's fantastic in it as well as Gail Weathers just the characters all of them really are, are all fantastic the villains are great Ghostface is obviously iconic as well yeah I, I don't have a single bad thing to say about Scream everything it says about the horror genre and everything it tries to replicate about the horror genre is done so perfectly it's done so in a way that's very tasteful it's not you know taking the the mick or taking the piss out of horror movies in any way shape or form it is a film that is it takes little bits and pieces from iconic horror movies but doesn't rely on them it still tells its own cohesive story and it's a really well-made story it's a really well put together story um so yeah if you've somehow never seen scream again it's another one for your books um to close out the 90s then going to talk about one that's a little bit maybe underrated uh it's a, a film in 1997 by um the irreplaceable david lynch um obviously everybody knows david lynch he's one of the most dynamic filmmakers ever to work you know in in hollywood or in the world really um but he had a film that came out in 1997 a start Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette called Lost Highway. And for the longest time, I thought I must have been the only person that really loved Lost Highway. And I think maybe it's because just it was largely unavailable up until very recently. Criterion are putting out or have put out a Blu-ray um, for it with a, a new restoration that was looked after by Lynch himself, which is which is amazing because I've only ever seen this film on like an old DVD um, that wasn't even from um, sort of, you know, the UK where I buy most of my sort of stuff from. It was, 
I think it was like from Denmark or Sweden or something. I remember having to change the language in the in the menu. Um, but it was a film that I just became enamored with. And again, it's maybe more horror adjacent, but there are some horrible, scary things that happen in this movie. Um, the villain uh, of this film, this sort of unknown kind of stranger who may or may not be the devil himself, is so quietly terrifying. And it's a film that's really built on dread. Um, some people maybe kind of chalk it off as kind of like a prototype for the kind of atmosphere that Lynch would do from Mulholland Drive. But I think that's kind of a cop out to say that. I think Lost Highway is, is its own film. It has its own story, its own themes. Um, I think it, it relies or leans into horror a lot more than Mulholland Drive does, which I should maybe cut in and say Mulholland Drive is one of my favorite films of all time. I'm not shitting on Mulholland Drive in any way, shape or form. Uh, but Lost Highway, I think, is is underrated, uh, both by Lynch fans and just by wider fans in general. And I hope this new Criterion release um, will perhaps sway people in the other direction or maybe sort of let them see what I've been seeing for, you know, the best part of 10 years. Um, hopefully it'll come onto the channel sometime soon as well, because I don't think it's actually streaming anywhere either. So um, for, for those listeners who are Criterion channel subscribers, maybe keep an eye out. Maybe sometime in November we might get... Uh, Lost Highway, the Criterion Edition, on the channel as well. So out of the 90s, into the millennium, into the 2000s. Now, dear listeners, I'm going to need you to stick with me for this first film of the 2000s. It is the most fun film out of all the films I've talked about so far and out of all the ones I'm going to talk about this film is absolutely the most fun. Um, some people hate this film for some reason that I just do not understand. It came out in 2003 by a guy called Ronnie Yu. And it is Freddy versus Jason. I have loved Freddy versus Jason like for since since it came out, since I was like old enough to watch it. Um, I saw Freddy versus Jason before I ever saw a Nightmare on Elm Street film or before I ever saw Freddy the 13th film. Um, I love it. I I think it's it's so fun. It's so cheesy, uh, cheesy I should say. It's just pure two thousands horror filmmaking. It's not very pretty. It's all digital. Um, but it just has its own just unique weird charm. Has bad CGI. Has crazy kills. It has little quips. It has, you know, crap rock soundtrack. It's just. It's everything that sums up 2000s, early 2000s sort of horror filmmaking. But because we just have these two icons of horror going up against one another, it just, it, it has a unique charm. And, and weirdly enough, it actually has a really compelling plot. Um, the main character's arc is actually really good. Um, it's not too dissimilar maybe from, from Scream's kind of main storyline. But um, yeah, Freddy... Freddy vs. Jason, if you've ever dismissed this film or refused to watch it because you think it's trash, it is trash, but it's so fun. It's just pure cheese, slimy, early 2000s, trashy film making, and it's so, so, so fun. Um, if you're looking just for something easy to watch with gory kills, you really just cannot go wrong. Now... And the next one we're going to talk about again, it's kind of a film that weirdly it's, um, 
its reputation has diminished over time and it could be because of a, a slew of sequels that were, were were not as good but like this film was a phenomenon uh, when it when it first came out it's a uh, paranormal activity uh from from Oren Pelly it's it's weird how much people hate this movie or, or, or hate this series now. I can, well, I suppose I can understand hating the series a little bit. And maybe I can understand hating the movie a little bit because despite the Blair Witch Project coming out like 10 years prior to this, roughly, this film was responsible for the the, the craze of, you know, the, the handheld kind of camera craze, um, found footage, um... And there's a lot of terrible films in that subgenre. So maybe that's the reason why people hate on Paranormal Activity. But I rewatched this earlier this year. Um, I was kind of making my way back through the series. And like, this is a damn good film. Uh, I remember I, I remember watching this film in the theatres as a teenager. And people were... Like, I, I've never seen people more scared in my life watching this movie. For a film where like not a whole lot happens for like... 70 80 percent of the film i've never seen people more scared in their whole life um especially during the kind of last 15 20 minutes of this film people were jumping out of their seats and when it, when i think back to those times it does kind of remind me you know of what horror films can and, and should do and that's really entertain us and scare us at the same time uh, a lot of horror films in the 2000s which you're not going to see any of them here that just became kind of gore fests and i'm talking about like the hostile movies the saw movies that kind of torture porn subgenre it doesn't really scare you more kind of horrifies you and then you have in like the 2010s you have all the all the films that kind of relied on jump scares and I don't really even call those horror films. I call them startling films because it's all they do. They just kind of make you jump and go, Ooh, and then you're fine again two seconds later. Uh, but I think Paranormal Activity, it, it, it creates dread. It creates horror. And it's also very highly entertaining as well. It's a really well-balanced film. And I hope that people maybe revisit it and, and give it give it a fair shot because we'll never see if... It'd be very unlikely to see a phenomenon like paranormal activity again for a long long time um just in terms of like the viral marketing the fact that it was so cheaply made and made so much money it was such a huge success um yeah i really just have to give props to to the filmmaker here um paranormal activity it's a good film and i and i urge you to maybe revisit it if you haven't watched it since it came out and you've been sort of having to watch all the sequels and stuff i, I would give the first one a revisit and you might see what i've been seeing we're going to close out the 2000s then with um, maybe a lesser known film. It's probably, it's, it's a well-known film in horror circles, but for general general sort of film goers, it might not be as known. Um, the filmmaker is getting a lot of plaudits at the moment, uh, Mr. Ty West. And there's a film he made in 2009 called The House of the Devil. Um, very much a slow burn horror film. It's probably a slow burn horror uh, as you can get really. Um, it's one of those films that just creates atmosphere over the course of the film and then lets it all blow out in the last 20 minutes um, kind of like a kind of like a kettle just lets it all build and build and build and then just releases all that tension in the last 20 minutes for a really really great ending um, it's very much indebted to, to 80s in terms of the aesthetic and not very much in the in the way the plot is set out um, but in terms of the aesthetic it's set in the 80s and it really pays homage to that quite a lot 
Um, it does feature a small role from, from Greta, uh, Greta Gerwig, obviously quite famous in her own right now as a filmmaker, a very talented filmmaker as well, I should say. Um, but if you're looking for maybe something a bit more slow burn, um, so kind of the antithesis perhaps of a, of a paranormal activity or a Freddy versus Jason, um, very much recommend The House of the Devil. Um, definitely for fans of maybe like something like Rosemary's Baby, uh, something maybe that's a bit more sort of darkly twisted, but very much slow burn as opposed to sort of making you jump out of your seat every few minutes. Now let's look at the 2010s. So the first film I'm going to talk about in the 2010s is it's another one of those films that not a lot of people are maybe I've seen it actually sat down and watched it it may they may be aware aware of it because this film got its funding because of a a speculative trailer that they made a bunch of filmmakers a bunch of indie filmmakers made a trailer for a film hoping to sell you know you know, hoping to sort of get financing to make a feature late based on the trailer. And the trailer went viral on YouTube, you know, back in maybe like 2008, 2009, 2010, that kind of time. But the full film itself didn't get made and released until 2011. So it just sneaks into the 2010s. And I remember watching the trailer, the, the sort of speculative trailer uh, with my friends. And we all thought it was just kind of funny. We thought, this film looks so corny it looks so goofy you know why are they even making this and it just kind of became kind of a bit of a joke even though none of us have actually seen the film it became kind of a bit of a joke amongst us and then i actually sat down and watched it a few years later i was like i'm looking for something to watch i can't believe they actually made this movie let me watch it um it's called grave encounters and this film is like has no right to be good but it, it really is it's like props to the filmmakers they they actually managed to make a film that is scary um relevant to sort of what you know horror from a tv perspective is because it does it's essentially a a play on ghost hunting tv shows uh probably specifically ghost adventures um the the opening credits or you know fake opening credits for this film's tv show is pretty much a riff on the opening credits to to ghost adventures um but yeah grave encounters it's it's a really actually it's it's a really well-made film Uh, it did have a sequel as well which is also quite good um definitely better than what me and my friends gave it credit for when we initially saw the trailer and if you're like me and if you remember kind of when the trailer went viral and you dismissed it and you never actually watched it I, i certainly recommend giving it a try uh, and you might find yourself very surprised. I, I know I just said a few moments ago, Paranormal Activity, that it created a slew of found footage type films, um, most of which were, were quite bad. But I think this one's very good because it's a little bit different. It's not just a straight found footage film where basically it's it's basically a splicing together of what was going to be the you know a TV show, a ghost hunting TV show. Um, but obviously the, the crew got a lot more than they than they bargained for. Uh, so if you manage to find it, it's probably one of those films that you can just find it on YouTube or it might be streaming somewhere. Uh, but if you can get your hands on it, I certainly recommend it. It's it's it goes under the radar and it's it's really really great film. Um, so from there, I'm going to talk about a film again that's kind of a bit more under the radar, perhaps. Um, it's by a guy called Ben Wheatley, 
who's you know pretty much pretty well known um over in in the UK where he's from might not be as well known over in America uh, but he made a film uh called Kill List again it's 2011 so just sneaks into the 2010s I'm not going to talk a whole lot about Kill List because it is a film that you will get so much more out of if you go in completely blind like not knowing you know much of what the film is about I'll give you a very 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 basic rundown which basically it's about these two soldiers who kind of become hitmen on the side and they're given this assignment that becomes very weird and that's all I'm going to say really um but it's such a again deeply atmospheric folk horror um it's very different it's it even has a bit of you know some maybe action or thriller elements but i it, i would i would definitely put this down as a horror film i call it a horror film for sure um it's on the shorter side i think it's around just about an hour and a half so if you're looking for something that is very different has twists and turns it's going to bring you places you didn't expect the film to bring you uh highly recommend looking at kill list i know it was previously on the criterion channel so hopefully it is streaming somewhere else uh, this october uh, and you manage to get your hands on it because i think it's a film that not enough people have seen or even heard of so i, I definitely want to give it a shout out if you're one of those people who maybe hasn't heard of it before or, or has heard of it but maybe hasn't gotten around to seeing it make sure you see it because it's just one of those films where it just you have to see it it all play out to believe to believe it you know uh lastly in the 2010s uh that i'm going to talk about is definitely the most well known um from these three uh that's the Ari Aster film Hereditary um i think most horror fans would have seen this by now a lot of general audiences would have seen it by now um Hereditary for me is like the perfect supernatural horror film because it plays a lot on ambiguity it plays a lot on is 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 any of this actually happening um it does that very very well it's well written the script is is really really good it's obviously well made it's it, Ari Aster is a very uh, capable filmmaker but what really 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 makes this film a top tier is and it's something that I don't I unfortunately don't get to say about a lot of horror films but the lead performance of Tony Collette is just phenomenal how she wasn't even nominated for an Oscar you know when this film came out is just utterly shambolic as a grieving mother she is just so intense in her grief she she yeah she she makes this film if if this performance wasn't as good as it is i don't think the film as a whole would be as good as it is she she holds this film to a higher standard uh tony collette i feel is maybe an underrated actress just in general she is she's amazing and pretty much everything she's been in uh she's fantastic um just a, a a funny kind of side note uh for hereditary uh, i'd first seen it myself in the in the theaters and i thought it was fantastic i sat at the edge of my seat the entire film slack jawed at what i was watching and i watched it with my with my fiance uh, a couple of years ago she had never seen it and she wanted to watch it and it utterly terrified her she couldn't go to sleep it was late and she was terrified of what what she had just seen and what you know with everything with tony collette especially so in order to make her be able to sleep she really wanted to watch another Tony Collette movie called Muriel's Wedding, uh, which was filmed in Tony Collette's native Australia. So if you are like my fiance and you are looking for some tonic after watching Hereditary, uh, that might help you sleep afterwards. 
Um, as a non-horror recommendation, I do recommend Muriel's Wedding. It's actually quite a, a fun, uh, funny comedy film uh, from Australia, which, again, a lot of maybe Western, you know, sort of UK, America, Ireland, we, we wouldn't see a lot of films from Australia outside of the super famous ones, you know, like Picnic at Hanging Rock. So uh, Muriel's Wedding is a non-horror recommendation, but Hereditary is the true recommendation for, for the 2010s. Um, so let's move now into the 2020s. So I'm going I'm to preface the 2020s just by mentioning the fact that I am not well known for keeping up with the newest films. So um, don't be annoyed that if I haven't picked your last film, your favorite film from the last two years, because I just I, I just don't keep up with a lot of the, the newer releases. I often see them after they've come out for a little while. So the films I'm going to talk about for the 2020s for, you know, the last two years up until now are probably a bit more on the more well-known side. Um, the first one, you might be surprised me mention, um, it's technically three films <laughs> that I'm going to be recommending as, as one film. Um, it was part of this, this thing that Netflix did last year. They released three horror films once a week. There, it was a trilogy of films, and they released one every week leading up to Halloween. Uh, it was a series called Fear Street, and they did three of them. The first one based in 1994, the next one based in 1978, and the last one based in 1666. And each of them kind of embraces the era um, that, they're, that they take place in. Um, they're not like amazing, but they're super fun. And they're uh, like a, way more gory and horror than I actually expected going in. You know, when I saw that they were based on a series by Oral Stein, who you might know or should know, did the Goosebumps uh, series of books. I was expecting Goosebumpsy. Uh, kind of film just kind of easy going maybe sort of something that's geared more towards kind of early teenagers but like the film the the kills in this film are like really really um really gory really out there um it definitely wasn't what i expected going in uh, but i think it balances that kind of fun um sort of element with the sort of really really nasty kills really well so if you're looking for like maybe like a a trilogy that is interconnected don't think these are three completely separate films they all play into one another into the into the sort of larger timeline if you're looking for something like that where kind of like freddy versus jason where the kills are gory but you're also going to have fun uh the fear street series um i i would recommend those they are they are they're very different uh for the next one then for the 2020s um again uh, this is actually something that came out uh, earlier this year in fact the, la- the next two films i'm going to talk about came out this year in 2022 earlier in the year um and i'm going to talk about scream 5 uh, obviously i already talked about scream so i'm not going to rehash about how much i love the scream series but scream 5 i find it really weird that people didn't really like this one as much or you know maybe didn't get as good reviews as scream 4 i thought it was fantastic i thought the filmmakers really knew exactly what kind of film they were making um, in terms of the era of horror that we are now in with this era of of legacy sequels. And this is something that, because it's a Scream film, they, of course, talk about legacy sequels uh, in the film uh, as they're trying to figure out who the Ghostface killer is uh, this time around. Um, but I loved it. I saw it in the theatres. I've seen it again since it came out um, on digital. Um I really loved it. It's probably like my third favorite Scream film uh, after the first two. 
Um, again, the kills are good. It's a you know good story. Like all the screen films, the mystery behind who Ghostface is really propels it. Um, I think the cast, the wider cast, is is quite good. Uh, probably better than the one in in the twenty four. Uh, was it twenty fourteen? Scream four came out. I can't remember. Uh, but I think it was better than the one in Scream four. The the wider cast, I should say, uh, was maybe a bit more likable in this film. Um. But yeah, Scream 5, if, if you didn't get around to see it, or maybe the reviews put you off, um, listen to my review instead. I'm recommending Scream 5, or, or just Scream, as it's known as, because obviously that's the way they do legacy sequels. <laughs> so it's just called Scream, but it is Scream 5 in reality, and I do recommend it. Uh, the last film that I'm going to talk about then, again, as I said from earlier in 2022, if you somehow missed this film or it's been off your radar for whatever reason, you must be living under a rock. As we once again talk about our friend Ty West and it's his film X. Um, X is, it's, it's a really interesting film. You watch the first hour and you think this is kind of like a sleazy porno. Um, but then it becomes a, a slasher film and it's, it's the second half of the film which really, really makes it. Um, the cast is all really fun. We have Maya Goth. We have Jenna Ortega, who was also in Scream 5, interestingly enough. Brittany Slow, Kit Kudai. You know, it has a, has a good cast. Ty West, um, and this is something that Zach talked about recently on our podcast. Um, Ty West was kind of away from horror for a long time. And he came back with X and it's like he never went away. Um, I know that his, the seek, or the prequel to X, Pearl, is out in the theatres at the moment and is already another film in, uh, of this trilogy that's already been announced called Maxine. So if you're looking to get in on the ground floor with these films while you still can, uh, check out X. Uh, it should be available on digital now at the moment. Pearl is in theatres right now from May 24. Uh, and Maxine should be out sometime uh, next year, I believe, as well um but yeah x is a it's 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 entirely different to anything you would have seen before from a horror uh film it is super sleazy but also really well made and really pays homage to a lot of a lot of horror especially in the 70s texas chainsaw massacre is probably the biggest um influence on this film just from a stylistic point of view so there we have it guys um if you're still around listening to me I appreciate you listening to me. Um, hopefully you enjoyed the recommendations. Hopefully there's stuff that you can take away that you might not have heard of or might not have seen before. Um, if you don't follow me on Letterboxd, um, I'm, my Letterboxd is in the description uh, of the episode. It's also the Owls 23 If you want to give me a follow on Letterboxd, I will be made, making a list of all the films I talked about so you don't have to keep pausing and put stuff on your watch list. Uh, feel free to go to Letterboxd um, and you'll be able to see the list there as well if you want to copy things across. Um, next episode, we will be talking about more horror films. It is that time of year, so uh, strap in. If you like horror, strap in. Uh, next episode, we're also going to be talking about uh, a couple of horror films that Zach has put on the table for us, as you might have heard at the end of the last episode. Um, so once again, thanks, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>